Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another wonderful, exciting hour of The Learning Curve. This week, I'm joined by not only a long-term friend and colleague, but someone I enjoy tag-teaming with whenever I get an opportunity. It's Alicia Searcy. Alicia, how are you doing? I am wonderful, Gerard. How are you? It is fantastic to be with you. I'm doing well. It's beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia, a little windy today. I'm assuming the weather in your neck of the woods is probably a little sunnier than my side. It is, although we are still having three or four seasons in one day in Atlanta. <laughs> right now, it appears to be spring, about 70 degrees and beautiful, so we're grateful for that. This morning, I think it was 40 degrees. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. Not a good thing. Well, speaking of good things and changes, what's the story of the week that caught your attention? So this one was very interesting. Uh, New York Post has an article by the editorial, or editorial, I should say. It's entitled, New York's Education Leaders Take Another Step Against Excellence. So I'll just preface this by saying I live in Georgia. You know, I know a lot about education in Georgia, but I've also been a state legislator and a superintendent, and so I do follow some things nationally. And so this editorial is essentially following the fact that New York continues to lower its standards for students who are graduating from New York public schools. And what's interesting to me, you know, I always think about this, Gerard, from a policy standpoint. I'm I'm a big picture strategic thinker. And so while they make some great points about things like students will only have to get a 65% on these five exams that they'll have to pass in order to graduate, Obviously, 65% anywhere else, right? If you get a 65 on a paper that's failing, that's a problem. And so this whole editorial is about the lowering of standards and what does the diploma actually mean by the time students graduate. And I think that's a very important point. I am deeply concerned about the lowering of standards, period. I think I might have even said last week on this same podcast that in Georgia, Last year, they were all excited about the historic high of graduation rates across the state. But you kind of have to put an asterisk by that number, right? Because you had a number of students who didn't return to school, right? There's lower enrollment. You know that a number of students didn't get everything they needed because of COVID. And so you have to wonder, what does that graduation rate actually mean? And I think it's similar when we talk about what's happening in New York and probably plenty of states around the country. I think the goal here is to make sure that students have mastered the content that we want them to have. We want them to obviously be able to do math well and read and write and all of those things. I don't think the goal is to lower the standards in a way that we don't know if they can be successful, right, outside of high school and whether they're going to college or going into career. So I think this editorial is important and raises some really good questions. I will say one thing, though, that I do agree with, and it may be a little controversial, is that they've replaced some of the tests with students being able to do presentations. And I know that we're stuck on those standardized tests, but I, for one, believe that there are other ways that we can measure how students master the content. And so I like this idea of students being able to do a presentation. I'm not saying across all content areas, but I do think there's value in having alternative, if you will, or differentiated ways that we assess students and their mastery. What do you think? Well, you hit all the right points. I mean, just think about New York City. It's the largest school system in America, a million students predominantly students of color, urban, high poverty, and they've also got public schools that are not charter schools that are doing well. And we know that some of the district in part is being carried in part by students who are in charter schools. So New York has been a place where people have experimented with everything from standards-based learning to a mayoral takeover to community control back in the late 60s, really in Oceanville. And now we're to standards. So what I wonder is, are we calling this what it really is? Is it really lowering standards or are we lowering expectations? And I think mm -hmm. it's a difference with a distinction. I understand the importance that some students, in fact, just aren't great standardized test takers. Guess what? I'm going to raise my hand right now. Yeah. I wasn't a great standardized test taker in high school or even for graduate exams. So I own that and I know it well. 
I'm with you. I believe we can find creative ways for students to demonstrate proficiency and places in Tennessee, California, Louisiana, your state, and some of the urban areas. People have found ways at the local school site to come up and say, hey, here's what you can do. So I think we can do that. But I do think at some point, it's really a question of are we lowering expectations? Yeah. Have we reached a point where we basically have said in an impolite way, the students that we have today aren't up to snuff and we simply can't educate them. That's one role that's putting it on students. The second role is our teachers are burnt out, they're tired, they're overworked, underpaid, and we just can't give them the kind of professional development and financial resources necessary to get them up. That's a human resource dynamic. Third, that families aren't engaged enough, or if they are engaged, it's about you know one issue, it's not enough. That's a family piece. I think there's some valid points in all three of them, but we remember one thing, education in many states and the governor's budget is the number one line item. In New York City with a million students and a multi-billion dollar budget, it's not as if you woke up yesterday and realized, wow, we're working with high poverty kids who are from challenging zip codes. Some of them are doing well, some of them are not. And the best we can do is lower standards. No, I think what we're doing is we're lowering expectations. Mm -hmm. And we're saying that we are simply gonna find a new way to calculate it. Now, think about it. A 65 is now a pass rate. I don't believe it. So for people who are in the military, I wasn't in the military, my brother was, my father-in-law was in the military. I know from reading research from people who are going to the military that they said a number of students today, black, white, Hispanic, aren't passing the ASVAB. And that's mm -hmm. the test you need to get into the military. I don't know if the cutoff score is 80. I don't know if it's 65. I'd be shocked if someone said, if you get a 65, you can join the military. We know that if you are taking a driver's test, Getting a 65 isn't going to get you a driver's license in Virginia or California. No. I do realize in New York or Georgia, I do realize a lot of people don't have a driver's license. They've never driven a car. I worked in New York and was shocked to meet people who had never driven, but they also have a great transportation system. But would we, let's use your state of Georgia, but also New York, would we bring on a football player to our high school football team or college team if he ran or he, if his overall score for athletic prowess was 65 or under? No. Right. We're, so we're saying we're not concerned about whether you can get a 4.0. We just want you to run a 4.3 in the 440 or in the 40-yard dash. I think this is a bigger issue, and I put it in context of the fact that this is the same month 40 years ago where a Nation at Risk report was released to the American public, and we just had a great conversation about that at Aspen. And one of the things they said is that if a dangerous foreign enemy put up on us in 1983 an education system that produced the kind of results that we have, someone would say this was an act of war. I don't think it's hyperbole because I understand the context mm -hmm. of why they were using military vernacular at that time, given the fact that 80 percent of the people who were in the U.S. Senate had military experience and 50 percent of the people in the House had military experience. We were also in the Cold War. The Berlin Wall had not fallen. So that kind of stuff was real. You fast forward to today, and you're saying 65% is a passage rate, when we know that right now 75% of the school age, I should say military age, men and women who should qualify for the military no longer qualify for the military because of education, because of criminal justice, and because of health. And so... I believe that there's a bigger conversation. Standards, yeah, but I think we're just being impolite uh, or <laughs> politely saying this is really lowering expectations. It is. First of all, that's one of the reasons why I love talking to you and learning from you. You are a walking encyclopedia, which I know kids today have no idea what that is. But thank you for all of that knowledge. And I think you're exactly right. And that's why I say, you know, this is a bigger question, right? It's not just what tests are you going to pass to graduate from high school, but this is about what do we want students to know in this country? What does it mean to have a high school diploma? What does it mean to be prepared for the world? And I worry that we get caught in these conversations about a 65 versus an 80 or whatever it is, and not having the conversation about what are our expectations for our students? 
I couldn't agree with you more. And it, it worries me. It worries me actually, you know, and you and I both have school age children. I now have three. And so as I watch what's happening in schools, and I, again, you bring up a great point about the status of teachers and the burnout and compensation, mental health, mm-hmm. the number of issues mm-hmm. that educators are facing what kind of system do we have now? And frankly, where are the ideas that will help us to reform, if you will, this education system, which is why I'm so excited about who we're going to be talking to in a little bit. Exactly. And now that I think about it, when you mentioned uh, 65% and our teachers, just think of the number of teachers who say they're not coming back next year or those who didn't come back this fall. They're done. And when we can't get teachers into the classroom, and at the end of the day, as many policies and, and research papers that I can support or write, when the teacher closes the door, he or she, that's their room. And that's the work they're doing. So we've got some big issues ahead. Yes. And in fact, it kind of leads into my story of the week, which is from USA Today, How Schools Serve Homeless Students. It's by Kate Ricks. Growing up, as long as... I can think about it. I don't remember homelessness being a dynamic in my school. I'm not saying that we had children who weren't homeless. I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. Today, we know a whole lot more about homeless children, and and we definitely had them in the 70s. So this article really talks about what public schools are doing smartly and through partnerships to help out the families. So let's just look at 2020. According to one statistic, there were more than 50,000 families with children who experienced homelessness over the previous year. And this actually meant that we had over 1 million school-aged children who were identified as homeless. And this information is coming from the National Center for Homeless Education. And it's an organization in a previous life where I've had an opportunity to go to their website to read their information. And it really is a good one-stop shop for a national perspective on homelessness, but you can also dig down deeper. So that would be one one spot I'd say you should go to. When we think about the homeless population, the first person that comes to mind is a single adult, often a single man and not children. But we know the face of homelessness, in fact, includes women with children. But when you think about how you define it, you know, I've got my own definition, but according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, they define homelessness as people living in shelters or places not meant for human habitation. I said, wait a minute, not meant for human habitation. There are families right now who live in homes that have been dilapidated or mm-hmm. have been challenged through a whole, for a whole lot of reasons, particularly in, in the South during hurricane season, have never recovered. They live there now. You wouldn't call those people homeless. Right. You would say they live in a bad home. But to think the definition is that, I find it interesting. I didn't know. So that's it. But the author also says, well, that's he's actually agreeing, saying, well, I'm not sure that's the case because there are many families who are doubling up, living with other families mm-hmm. right now because they don't have a home or they are, as one of my niece would say, couch surfing. And so homelessness is much broader than we than we define. But what are schools trying to do? So there's one school or district, I should say, in Vancouver, Washington, who said, well, we're not going to just talk about it. We're going to do something. And so in Vancouver, they've actually partnered with a local housing agency to deal with the homeless crisis. This crisis, in fact, started with them in 2014 when 150 residents at a village apartment were suddenly evicted. And the school system Social service leaders and others realized, wow, we have no plan of action. And so over 100 families, nearly 90 children had reached out for help. People had come together, leaders and organizers. They helped 75 families find new homes. But it was through that experience where they said, we've got to do a better job of working together between school and agency. And so the Clark County, which is where there are today, they created liaisons with the homeless agency so that the agency can work directly with families to try to provide support. I do know that a lot of principals have identified homeless children, and there's a dynamic that, A, you don't want your other, your classmates to know, you may not want your teacher to know. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons you work with an agency is the agency can actually be a go-between between families, schools, and students, so as to keep some of this private, but also to provide 
services. We also have an example from Minneapolis. They have the homeless and highly mobile service for Minneapolis public schools. Minneapolis, for many, came more to national light because of the killing of George Floyd. When people think about Minneapolis, they know that it's ranked as one of the smartest cities in the country based upon people age 25 and older who have a bachelor's degree. But people often forget there's a lot of poverty in that city, also a lot of homelessness. And so through their partnership, the school is working with the homeless agency using mobile technology to help families. And since I'm talking about homelessness, let me give a shout out to my colleague, Tony, who is one of the co-founders of the high school for the recording arts. His charter school is over 25 years old, one of the oldest in the country, but he started that school in part to help children in Minneapolis and St. Paul who said, you know what, I may not go to college, but I want to get involved in the music career. And this is the home of Jenny Jam, Prince and others. But what he often mentions in speeches is that nearly 40% of his student body for the early years were homeless. Mm. And I had a chance to visit his school last year with a colleague of mine from the University of Virginia. And they identified that the average student going to their school was out of school for two years, two years before they arrived at his school. And so he's someone living this and 25 plus years in the game, he's changed the trajectory for moving students from poverty to possibility and families and teachers. In fact, one of the former students is now a guidance counselor at the school. So just want to give a shout out to Tony as well. And then lastly, let me give a shout out to Boston. You know, Pioneer, that's their home. Well, and Boston, the school system is also working with the local homeless shelter to do the same thing. It is a subject I will not say that I know as much about as I should. This was a good eye opener. I know it exists, but it's good to see our public school systems being the kind of partners you and I know they are. But this is a good opportunity to give them a shout out as well. It is. And I can tell you, Gerard, when I was superintendent, you know, there are many experiences that I had, but one of the ones that I will never forget, we had two young ladies in our elementary school who were homeless. They lived in their mother's car. And I don't believe that their classmates knew, but they would come in every morning, take baths in the bathroom at the school, put on their uniforms and go to class. And I would watch them walk by, you know, in their lines or in their classrooms. And I don't think you knew just from the naked eye what was happening. But I often think about them, just the level of persistence and grit and endurance that it takes for children to show up to school every day, knowing that they may or may not have had a meal the night before. They may be getting their meals at school. They don't have all of the basic things that many of us kind of take for granted, but still show up to learn every day. And I know that federally, you know, schools are required to provide some services through the McKinney-Vento Act. But if I recall correctly, there were never enough resources for these families to help with Mm -hmm. food, to help with shelter, to help with some of the other basic needs like school supplies. And so then you think about what does it mean for a teacher and for the school to have the resources. I think the article mentions this, you know, having extra supplies, extra snacks mm-hmm. to make sure that these babies have what they need. So my heart just aches for families who are dealing with significant, you know, life and death issues who are still showing up to school every day to learn and to get what they need. And I know that obviously more resources are needed at the school levels so that we can address these issues and we can help support. And as you said, you know, kudos to the school systems and the schools that have figured out how to partner with the food banks in their communities or homeless shelters or any of these services that they can partner with to make sure the kids have what they need and families have what they need. One of the schools in Fulton County here in Georgia does a really good job of having both a clothing and a food pantry so that parents who may not have jobs or may need clothing to go to an interview have a place that they can go in the school to get those resources. Same thing for food. And some would say, well, you know, is that the role of the school? That has become more and more the role of the school, where we're asking them to do a lot more with a lot less, because this is where children are spending most of their time. This is where we know we have these resources and they need it. 
So I too am glad that this article came out so that we could all be more educated about what's happening with children and families in our country. And I think it also speaks to more work that we have to do at the school, district, state, federal level to make sure these families have the resources they need to be successful. No, all great points. And thanks for sharing the story about two students you knew who lived that lifestyle, because I'm sure if we contacted five of our friends who are principals or teachers, they know someone. And it's, and it's also just worth noting that a lot of the face of homelessness, when we think about it as people who are there for six, seven years, a lot of women who are coming out of abusive relationships or going through a divorces who have children often will find themselves in shelters, not because they're lazy, not because they're uneducated, not because they can't work. It's because they had to leave a very violent situation yes. at that moment and had to transition. And they may find themselves in that situation for a month, maybe a year. That's an aspect of homelessness that we don't think about. And I also think about in our era of hyper-partisanship that folks on my political side of the fence, the Republicans, that sometimes we overlook that there are aspects of poverty that mm -hmm. are generational, aspects of homelessness that are generational. But let's also, every now and then, take a look at the laws we voted for that may have played a role in right. making that possible. So just my two cents. Yes. Agreed. And thank you for lifting that up. It's so very true. And it's a cycle. You know, once you are in the cycle of poverty, it's so hard to get out because of, just as you said, the policies in place, the systems that we put in place. I think about the title loan programs and all of these things that are out there that keep you in that cycle. And we forget Absolutely. about that sometimes. Well, someone who knows a great deal about poverty and how to use education to bring people out of it uh, will be our next guest, Dr. Howard Fuller, who's going to join us. Gerard, I am excited to be with you today because we have one of my favorite people on the entire planet, Dr. Howard Fuller, here with us today. Dr. Fuller is the Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Education and Founder Director of the Institute for the Transformation of Learning at Marquette University. Dr. Fuller has many years in both public service positions and the field of education, including Superintendent of the Milwaukee Public Schools, and director of the Milwaukee County Department of Health and Human Services. As director of the ITL, Dr. Fuller supports education options that transform learning for children while empowering families, particularly those of low income, to choose the best school options. Dr. Fuller holds a BS degree from Carroll College, an MSA degree from Western Reserve University, and a PhD from Marquette University. Welcome, Dr. Fuller. Alicia, thanks so much. It's very great to hear your voice. Yours too, and thanks for all that you do, have done and continue to do. So I wanna jump in. Over a decade ago, Race to the Top made a big national push on charter schools, testing standards and teacher evaluations. While COVID has seen public schooling flooded with billions of dollars in additional federal funding. The 2022 NAEP results and general momentum of K-12 education reforms seem to have stagnated in recent years. So what's your take on the current overall state of K-12 education reform in the United States? My take is some kids matter more than other kids. And the reason I want to start there is because these test scores that you're talking about, you can go back over the last 30 or 40 years and you'll see periods where they seem to be getting better for poor kids, children of color, then they stagnate, then there's this, there's that, whether it was COVID or something else, there's always something that happens so that you don't see the kind of achievement levels you would want to see for all children in this country. And so what I've concluded, and I could be wrong, because I've been wrong about a lot of stuff, but I've concluded that the reason why this continues to happen is that poor children, particularly poor children of color, but I think this is probably true for poor children generally, irrespective of race, they don't matter as much as kids who have money. And the mm. reason why I'm saying this, and it relates to NAEP scores or other scores that you can use, every year, I shouldn't say every year, every couple of years, 
there's an article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that says there's a crisis in reading for black children. This crisis has been with us for at least 30 years. Mm. And so the way I look at this is if we can all agree, and maybe we can't, but let's assume we can all agree that black children are not genetically incapable of learning how to read. Let's say that it isn't their genes. And if it isn't their genes, and we actually know how to teach kids reading, it isn't like there's no knowledge base out here about how to teach kids reading. Then the question is, how do these scores continue to be this way? And so what I've concluded is it continues to be that way because for the political structure writ large, these children that we're talking about are not important. Because if they were important, we would have a plan, we would have the money, and we would have the implementation strategy to change this. And it doesn't change. And so I'm left saying it doesn't change because we don't have the political will to insist that it changes. And that is so hard to try to accept, right? Hard to hear, hard to accept, but you certainly can understand given the numbers. And I would argue that just looking at NAEP alone, it's not poor, it's not students of color, it's all of our kids, right, are not reading at grade level. They're not proficient in math. So it's, we are certainly in a crisis, but I would agree, I don't, there doesn't seem to be a real plan. And I think one of the things that we thought, and I've only been in this movement, you know, maybe 15 years, you've been in it longer than I, we thought that choice would be one of those things that would allow students who are in schools that weren't working for them to have options elsewhere. And so when we think about, for example, the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue and Carson v. Macon, it's torn big legal holes in the anti aid Blaine amendments that blocked wider access to private and religious schooling in nearly 40 states. And since 2020, we've had a huge expansion of voucher education tax credit and ESAs in over 20 states across the country. Can you share your views on the long battle and progress of school choice in America? <laughs> Listen, you said so much. I mean, I do want to go back and just reference a point that you made that all children in the United States in comparison to, it depends upon what comparisons you want to make to quote, developed countries in the world, that in many respects, our test scores, I have not looked at them in the last few years, but the last time I looked at them, our test scores were lagging behind other developed countries in the world. Yes. But still, when you look at it, you still see this enormous gap between white children and children of color. So although I think you could rightfully argue that no kids are doing as well as they they should, we still got to acknowledge that there's this enormous gap between black kids and white kids or black kids and Latinos and so forth. And that presents a special problem in and of itself. So I think I'm accurate on that, but I know Gerard knows everything and he'll know whether or not that's true. (laughs) But having said that, to talk about the issue of parent choice. First of all, as you know, I've always supported parent choice and not school choice. And that to me was more than just a semantical difference because my goal was to try to make sure that low-income and working-class families had some of the options for their children's education that those of us with money have. From my standpoint, I'm concerned that some of the expansion of parent choice in this country right now is an expansion where low-income and working-class families will not be more advantaged than those with money. Because I never got in this battle so, so that those of us who already got money would get more money. My view was, how do we provide some of these options for low-income and working-class parents that those of us with money already have. Now, having said that, the point that you made is something that we got to ask ourselves, because I did think that at this point in time, if we could implement 
parent choice, that we would see a radical difference in the achievement levels of kids because we would create more great schools and et cetera. When you look at Milwaukee, and Milwaukee is a good place to look, one of the interesting things that we're, not interesting, difficult things that we're facing is that we set up a parent choice policy atmosphere, but what we didn't do was deal with equal funding. And it isn't even just equal funding because equal funding won't do the job. We have to have equitable funding. And that's very, very different. But in Milwaukee, for example, we don't even have equal funding when it comes to the per-pupil allotment for the kids. So if you were a family of three, a low-income family of three in Milwaukee, and you sent one of your children to MPS, the Milwaukee Public Schools, you would generate like $14,500, somewhere in that arena. If you send them to our school, which is an independent charter school, you would generate 9,800. If you send them to a private school and it was an elementary school, you'd generate 86. If it was a high school, you'd generate 89 or, or, or something more. So now what we're doing is we're in a battle to try to close the gap in funding because the reality of it is, like at our school, for example, we get kids who come into us in the ninth grade, 70% of them come reading two, three grade levels behind. And it is an enormous challenge to move those kids, and we're being asked to do that with far less resources. Now, let me put a pin on that and get to your what I think is the central point, and I'm hoping I'm at least approaching trying to address it. I think the reality of it is, is that we are not going to be able to create really great schools in a critical mass in a society that's not great. In other words, schools are an integral part of the institutional fabric of American society. Those institutional fabrics are interrelated. When you're talking about family, you're talking about government, you're talking about the economic structure, you, you know, you talk about these five or six main institutional frames for how society works. Well, they don't work independent of each other. There's an interrelationship between those things. So we're not going to be able to say we're going to really create great schools, but the kids are going to come to these schools. They won't have health care. They won't have adequate housing. We're going to try to make sure that the parents of these children are cut off from political power by putting as many barriers as we can in terms of their being able to vote. In other words, what I'm saying to you is, is, although I think that schools can make a difference, we're gonna have to face the stark reality that if we're not gonna make significant changes in the totality of poor children's existence, we're not likely gonna see great, great movement in schools, but we can make a larger difference in school than what we are making if we put the resources and a plan towards actually making that happen. Understood. Regardless of the type of school their parents choose. You talk about the way that people get to a school, and then you talk about, okay, what happens in the school? So you can create mechanisms to get people to a school, but then you got to say, okay, but is this a great school? And then the question becomes, what are the characteristics of a great school? Right. And then what I'm saying is once you even get to that and you're clear about some of the characteristics and you can implement them, because you see these schools that do extraordinary work with the children that we're talking about, but it takes extraordinary effort yes, it in, does. in order to even make small changes to say nothing about significant changes without cheating and without adding yeast onto the test scores. So what I'm saying is that we're all, at least I'll speak for myself, coming to grips with, I'm not going to say naivete, but some of the lack of recognition on my part about all of the things that impact, quote, education reform when you're dealing with the children that we're talking about. Yeah, totally understood. 
I want to go back to a point that you made earlier. It's not lost on me, and I think it's important to give an example, even in Atlanta, where I live in the metro area, but in the Atlanta school system, there was a study done just a year or two ago that talked about the growth of black students and how long it would take them to catch up to white students in Atlanta. And the number is astounding. It would take 127 years for black students in Atlanta public schools to catch up with white students if there was no growth among white students at all. It's staggering and unbelievable, but it speaks to exactly what you're saying. Yeah, and I want to go back to something you said earlier about how hard it is to accept this, this being the kind of data that you and I are talking about right here. You know, I'm still talking to younger people who, well, everybody's younger than me, but I'm still talking (laughs) to people who are engaged in struggle in some form. Like I was talking to Ethan Ashley just yesterday, you know, because I've been pushing, as you and Gerard know, that you know, I feel all of y'all owe me at least 25 years. And some of y'all are getting close now. <laughs> you know, I'm about 20, and I still got a long yeah, time to you're, go. You're, yeah, you're saying, hey, I've got a few more years to give you. But <laughs> I think Gerard and I might have been talking about this, but Derek Bell wrote this book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. He was trying to make the case that racism is like a permanent reality in American society. And so the obvious question would be, and it's sort of similar to what you're saying, that if we look at this data, and you start saying, well, it's going to take 127 years, you really begin to ask the question, well, is victory even possible? And I'm a pessimist, because what I, what I believe would be victory, I don't see how that becomes possible in the world in which we live. However, like, what Derek Bell said in Faces at the Bottom of the Well is that you have to engage in struggle, even if you don't see the possibility of victory, because not the struggle is the cosign on the injustice. And I look at that every day and say, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how impossible it is, I owe it to the people who come before us. I owe it to the people who are with us now. I owe it to the people who are yet to come to continue to fight, right? And to continue to say, this is not acceptable. That no, no, even though I don't see the movement, I'm going to keep fighting every day because if I stop, then I'm telling you that this is okay. Amen to that. Could not have said that better. And speaking of people who've come before us, a century ago, two great Black educators, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, started a national debate about vocational, technical, and liberal arts education that's still with us today. And so what's your view on the historic vocational tech versus liberal arts debate as the best way to educate young people? And what do you think can be done to improve these educational options today? Yeah, in some ways, I, I mean, I think that's a uh... It's not a mischaracterization of the debate, because to a certain extent it was, but it was a much larger debate, actually. It was a debate over, at that moment in history, should we be focused on, quote, liberal arts to prepare people to be citizens versus should we be engaged in just preparing people to work? But we got to remember, even though people say that was a vocational technical argument, it wasn't that. It was more... Are we going to continue to work in menial positions within the context of American society? So what I would say is that the debate, as it sometimes gets characterized, is a false debate. And so what I believe is that we need to prepare children and young people so that they can engage, as Paulo Freire said, in the practice of freedom. Their ability to engage in the practice of freedom means getting to a point where they can achieve some level of economic independence. And I'm using that in quotes. And so from my view, like at our school right now, we're, you know, this is something that we're dealing with. Even though our goal is to prepare kids to go to college, in the last 11 years, 100% of our kids have been accepted into college. And on Friday, they're going to tell us where they're going to go. Outstanding. It, it really is about preparing young people so that they can be economically and socially productive. And so for some of our kids, it means going to college. For some of our kids, it means going into a trade. For some of our kids, it'll be starting a business. Like one of the things I tried to talk about when I was superintendent 
is that I, I don't want all of our children to come out saying, who's going to give me a job? I want some of them to have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I think the shortcut of what I'm trying to say is I think we need to do both. And I don't think we need to make this this huge dichotomy. But a lot of times, though, as you know, Alicia, when people are saying, well, we want to train these kids to be in vocational areas, they're not talking about vocational areas where kids are going to be able to earn a living wage. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, when I went to Germany to look at the school of work effort then, and as you all know, in Germany, they put kids into tracks. And, mm-hmm. one, and they used to, at least. And once you got into the college track, that was that. If you got into the vocational track, that was that. And there was no, like, cross-fertilization between those two areas. But the vocational stuff that they were talking about wasn't just low-level menial jobs. It was high-level vocational and technical efforts. And as you all know, if that's what we're talking about, then kids have got to have a high level of math and science skills. (laughs) This isn't just about preparing kids to take the lowest-level jobs in a society. And that, to me, is where I think the debate may have been or some of the differences between Du Bois and Booker T. And I say that. Because as you all know, Du Bois lived to be 90-something years old. And by the time he died, uh, he had accepted a lot of the premises <laughs> of both Booker T. and Marcus Garvey. Because when you read what Du Bois said, because he wrote over such a long period of time, you can see the evolution in some of his ideas and some of the positions that he took you know, later on in his life. To piggyback off that, right now there's a debate going on about charter schools and whether or not they should exist and whether or not they should be a part of the public school system. Many people may not know that not only were you one of the founding members of the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools, you were also its first chair. And you've had a chance to see this grow from a national level. You also have your own charter school, but you've also seen the role of philanthropy, the role, the money that Gates and Walton put into Milwaukee to build small high schools. There was a point where there was bipartisan support And right now, it seems to be pretty thin. In your view, what's the current state of the charter movement politically? And can we get back to glory years or are those glory days gone? (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's a very good question, Gerard. And I don't know that I can answer it, man, because I don't have the national perspective that I used to have before I retired. (laughs) But if you look at what's happening in Wisconsin, it's really interesting because We have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, and we have a state where Trump won by 20,000 and Biden won by 20,000. That's the reality of our state. Right now, we have put together a very broad coalition, the broadest coalition that I've worked in in a long time, to try to impact this funding equality issue. And we have a Democratic governor who is saying, and I met with him and talked to him. In fact, I like him. We're, we're friends. <laughs> and he's saying, I'm willing to look at this issue of closing the funding gap. you got a Republican-led legislature that said, we're willing to look at this issue of closing the funding gap. Now, the question is, what is it going to take? Well, one of the things that's helping is that we have a $7.1 billion surplus, even though all of that money won't be in play. But I think the fact that this is even possible in a state like Wisconsin says that there may still be the possibility of developing bipartisan efforts on certain parts of this education battle, right? It doesn't mean that there's any possibility of us agreeing on everything. This is like critical race, all these other things that are floating out there. But for me, it's always about the search for where is it possible for us to do something that is, quote, bipartisan. And again, the strength and the weakness of the charter school movement is it's it's like a state by state thing, right? It's the laws are different. The political possibilities are different. Like I said, I don't have a good reading of how all of this is working out nationally, But what I can say is that at least at the moment in Milwaukee or in Wisconsin, there's the potential of doing something 
that people really thought might not have been possible. No, that's actually good to hear because there are other states in a similar situation and maybe even reversed Republican governor, Democratic legislature, Virginia, where I am as an example, where there's not any coalition remotely as broad as yours of talking about trying to move charter schools to the next level. So you did give us a great answer because we can look and see what your state's doing to make a difference. Here's the last question for you. So when George Floyd was murdered, there was, of course, a national reaction to it, both to the streets as well as the corporate suites. People say, we've got to diversify, we've got to do this. So we're now in 2023, number of laws are being passed about race education. You've had a chance to see the ebbs and flow of race relations in the U.S. that often follow the death of someone, King in the 68, people in the 70s and 80s moving forward. What are your thoughts about the state of race relations now and how it is impacting education for the good or for the worse? Well, first of all, man, I mean, people, you know, when you get old and stuff, Gerard and Alicia, one of the things you got to try to do is try to temper your cynicism, (laughs) which is hard. So when people was out here talking about post-racial America and stuff, man, even with George Floyd and all of that, because Gerard, you know from spending time with me in Milwaukee, is that in 1985, I think it was, I always get this, or 83, Ernest Lacey was killed with the policeman Iliopo putting his knee on Ernie Lacey's neck in the same way as George Floyd was killed. So when people were, were out here talking about, just, you know, look at how broad this is and look at those white people marching and black people marching and all this, I was like, man, I hope y'all are right. But I don't believe there's ever going to be in America anything that's called post-racial America. I don't, I mean, I hope I'm wrong and maybe I'll be proven to be wrong, but I don't see it. Because from the viewpoint that I operate on, We have a very, very polarized America, but it's not a newly polarized America. It has been historically a polarized America. Now, at different points in time, there are different movements that prop up, but there's always a reaction to those movements. And so now here we sit in 2023, going into 2024, with a very polarized America, a very polarized electorate. And race is still a central part of that polarization. So what that says to me is what Derrick Bell says about the permanence of race. And that says to me, there's going to be ebb and flows. There's going to be periods of, oh, you know, this is getting better and periods of this is getting worse. But until something much more fundamental than I can envision, I don't see, Alicia and Gerard, how we're not going to be fighting these battles around race. And they're going to come in different forms. You know, in different historical periods, the struggles that people face, they show themselves in different ways. The fundamentals are the same, but the manifestations of it are different, or the particular battles are different. Gerard, you know history better than me, and you know that you could make a comparison, at least I think you could, I don't know, we haven't talked about this, between the period when Andrew Johnson took over, right after Lincoln was assassinated, the period that we just went through with Trump, and that, in my view, we're still in, there are clear comparisons between the role that race was playing in the national debate and the national discussion in some of the same ways as it is occurring now and has been occurring over the last several years. So again, I, you know, I would end my answer by saying I'm not a person who sees how the racial discussion is going to be better in this country. That's not to say that it's going to be the same. That's not to say that there aren't periods where it seems like we've turned the corner But then when you turn the corner, what you see is another corner. And that's sort of how I view how this is going to go. But I hope I'm totally wrong. Got it. 
Well, Dr. Fuller, Alicia and I, thank you for joining us today, for sharing yes. your ideas and your wisdom. You always leave a good plate of food for us to, to dine on and some questions to take away. Yes. Keep up the good work. And for those of you who are listening, Dr. Fuller's school is named after him. You can find it online. And they're actually in the middle of a fundraising drive. So if you want to donate to the Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy in Milwaukee, please go to their webpage to do so. Dr. Fuller, good hearing your voice, and we look forward to connecting with you at another point. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. My tweet of the week is from Real Clear Education, May 1st. And it says, how to teach kids who flip between books and screen. I am still a reader of hard books. I also like to read books on screen. So I can be, I guess, ambidextrous that way. But many of our students can't, won't, or believe they shouldn't. So this is definitely a tweet worth looking into. Next week's speaker is a first-timer for us, is Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola. She is a assistant professor of sociology at Morehouse College in Atlanta, your area. In fact, I know you're a Spelman alumna. Yes. And the author of a book, The Bricks Before Brown, The Chinese American, Native American, and Mexican American Struggle for Educational Equality. It's a subject that I don't know a great deal about, and I learned about her through a presentation she made at the University of Virginia. So look forward to having her. So, Alicia, again, thank you so much for the tag team. I look forward to joining you on the show again or now that we can travel again. People who want to have debates about education, you can bring us two yes. together and let us do what we do. But always good to have you here, and I look thank forward you. to the day that I can call you Superintendent Alicia Searcy. Amen to that, Gerard. I appreciate that. <laughs> I can't wait either. <laughs> Come on, Georgia. All right. Come on, Georgia. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Talk to you again.